everyday witches emerge from the shadows of secrecy. Broom closets are flinging open and witches are taking flight. Whether you are hiding in your cozy closet or flying with pride, stay for a spell as witch casting with Theodora Pendragon and her guests share magical moments, stir the cauldron and debunk misinformation and misconceptions about paganism, witches and our wonderful world of magic. Today, my special guest is Marshall WSL, and I will have Marshall introduce himself and tell us what WSL stands for. Hello, Theodora. How are you? I am good. I am. Hello, everyone. I'm Marshall WSL, which stands for Witch of Southern Light. That's pretty much my handle on the majority of all of my platforms, Witch of Southern Light. For the sake of safety and anonymity, I don't use my legal last name and instead have supplanted it with WSL. It's always good to be safe. You know, it really is nowadays, especially with the hullabaloo of everything that's going on. Where did you get the name Witch of Southern Light? It's not like a really uh, epic story. It's It's kind of a small one. It never occurred to me when I first started putting my content online that I would need to protect myself or that I would need to do something outside of my traditional, like, personal platforms. So, like, on my TikTok, on my Instagram, I was originally just posting things directly to my name. I realized I needed to kind of separate that and do something that really focused on my spiritual path, on my witchcraft and my content that was revolving around that. So, I decided to put together a profile. And funny enough, I originally wanted Witch of the South. I'm in Texas, just so everyone knows. I am too. Yes, that's right. So you get it. I get it. <laughs> yes, you get it. There is something about, it's weird. The whole point of the having Witch of Southern Light was the fact that um, witchcraft was the light in my darkness. It really helped me come out of my shell. It allowed me to see through some really, really tough and hard times. And being in the South, it just kind of all fit together and it was available, most importantly. <laughs> it is available. And you know what I say, and people who listen to my podcast will hear me say it over and over, there's never been a better time to be a witch. Oh, I agree. I definitely agree. So tell us about your spiritual journey. How did that start? It's a little bit of a roller coaster, to be perfectly honest. I was born and raised in Texas in a a suburb of of a large city. I grew up in a very kind of uh, mixed spiritual family. My mom was Episcopalian as well as her mother. My father was agnostic, but actually grew up in the East. So he was born in, in the Philippines and raised in Singapore. So his entire livelihood, his entire life up until college was exposed to a completely different collection of spiritualities that ultimately made him just not really interested in organized religion. 
my granddad is Orthodox Jewish. So uh, there's a whole nother portion of my family with has spirituality that's that I didn't even get exposed to till much later because of our own family split due to the fact that he married a non-Jewish woman. That is a whole nother branch of story as well. But I did not find peace in the church. That's my own personal experience. Um, before I even knew that I was gay, I understood very clearly that I was different. My mom understood very clearly that I was different. My dad liked to look the other way um, until it was staring at him directly in the face and screaming, I'm gay. <laughs> but I didn't just yet know what about me was different. But I did know that I was not finding a place within the church and, and a, a place that really set and was put aside for me. I'd always been interested in witches and movies and stories, magic, uh, mysticism. This is something that has constantly been an interest of mine. And I want to say when I was in sixth grade, about 12 years old, uh, I was at a Books A Million at a outlet mall. And there I happened to come across a section of, you know, I didn't even know this existed at the time of new age and, and occult books. And there was Bookland's, uh, Bookland's, <laughs> Bucklin's big blue book of the complete book of witchcraft. Yeah. It's a fabulous book. <laughs> it, it, no, it really is. Especially in the, in the mid nineties, like this was a time period where that was, I mean, it was exploding. Every, everyone, when I talk about this book now remembers it because of its big blue cover. And I saved up, I want to say multiple weeks of lawnmower money so I could buy that book, which is, I want to say it was around 20 ish dollars at the time. Your lawnmower money. All my lawnmower money, yes, because I got paid $10 every time I mow the lawn every two weeks. So it took about, uh, like, I want to say a good month, month and a half to pay for the tax. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I devoured it. I devoured that book. And I want to say throughout my middle school years, I just dove headfirst into Wicca. I was very young to dive headfirst into Wicca. You know, Wicca in itself, I'm not saying that it's not for children. That's not what I mean by this. But the material can be quite adult. And I understand that as an adult now. At the time, I didn't get that aspect of it because, you know, you're a young teen and that stuff goes over your head. But I got into Silver Ravenwolf. I got into Scott Cunningham. And throughout my young years, I was kind of an out and proud witch. It was a really fascinating experience. And sometimes it really helped me. Sometimes it caused hindrances. But I eventually came out when I was in high school, which again, also had its ups and downs. My family was majoritively very supportive. And I, I continued my spirituality until I want to say I graduated high school. And in my, I want to say my early 20s to late 20s, I completely just, I had a big whirlwind shift of um, reality slapping me in the face. I moved out at 19. I got a full-time job. I kind of dropped a lot of my spirituality. And you know what? I, a journey's a journey and it takes you where it takes you. I want to say in my late 20s, I got back into it by a friend that pulled me in. And unfortunately, I've talked about this before, but unfortunately, a lot of those things that I got pulled into were more of the new age movement. Um, a lot of new thoughts, law of attraction, some things that I think had some really beneficial ideas that unfortunately within a few short years, took me straight down the path of spiritual bypassing, ignoring my emotions, believing that I deserve the things that I got that were bad because I paid too much attention to them. And then literally actually advising others to do the same. I became the thing that I now actually very much preach against, no pun intended, 
because spiritual bypassing and and a lot of the ideas that negatively came out of this new thought movement that your thoughts are things and become things in your life, uh, unfortunately, has a huge uh, victim-blaming cyclical nature where I found myself taking responsibility for everything wrong that happened in my life. I mean, I'm talking about traffic. (laughs) Like every little thing that I didn't want that I thought about that came into my life, I believed I was responsible for bringing. That's not healthy. That's, That's not a good way to live. And I don't think that is a positive spirituality. No, it sounds like a a victim mentality. It very much was. It was a struggle because I found myself desperately seeking a way to understand answers about spirit, about things outside of myself. I mean, I did past life regressions. I did, uh, like, I went to see channelers. I I saw a lot of this stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that I saw online that looked really promising, I'd see in person and realize oh, this feels, I hesitate to use the word scam. I am never here to judge someone else's product that they're, that they're selling, what they're putting out. It could be their sole creative force. And sometimes it's a scam. And, and we, we, I think we both know that that is unfortunately very frequent in the spiritual community. It is. And it happens in every industry, even in car sales, there are scammers. Absolutely. You get lemons. I was very lucky to find myself dropping these ideas that I felt were not only no longer serving me, they didn't make sense. Even if they were true, I was like, I can't live this way anymore. So I'm just not going to. And I took a step back, but I felt there was this void. I ended up, this sounds kind of funny, but I ended up having these binges where I started watching a lot of, I started watching Salem again. I had this period where I was like binging Charmed and then then the reboot came out and I was like, you know, I really miss the joy, the elation that witchcraft really brought me in my younger years. And I have this hole in my life that I enjoyed filling with spirituality until it turned on me. And so I decided to kind of pick up where I left off back in my younger years. And when I did, everything had changed. Mind you, it had been about a decade, right? So what once was hardcore witchcraft is Wicca and Wicca is witchcraft. They are synonymous. There's nothing outside of that. That was the majority of what was being pushed in the 90s at that time and even some of the early, early 2000s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. I was exposed immediately to so much more. Now, witch chalk has its problems, of course. But at the same time, it put stuff out there. It put things in the viewpoint of viewers who may be interested, who may not be interested, but it, it got a lot of attention. And I was flabbergasted at the fact that the thing that once was so secretive was so not for public consumption was just being put out there for everyone to share. People were sharing their books of shadows. People were talking about rituals. I have my own personal things that I will and will not show on the internet. But at the same time, I'm much more open because I'm realizing the community is evolving, has evolved. I now very much understand that Wicca and witchcraft are not synonymous. There's so many other aspects of magic. I learned about chaos magic. I learned about uh, ceremonial magic. I learned about... uh, the histories behind many of these magics. I fell in love with folkloric and traditional witchcraft. Folklore is one of those things that I never truly understood as being an inspiration. 
to the witch, to the visit, the visage of the witch, to what a witch does. I was very much up until that time under the same assumption I was when I was younger that Wicca's story of their ancient origins was still very real. And I had not been exposed to a lot of the historians who were coming forward and saying, there's, you know, not a lot of evidence for some of these things like there used to be. And I I began to learn a lot more about what was evidentially proven and what wasn't. And that really started to change and shape the way that I built my framework of craft. And, And building it actually is the big thing that I think really, really stood out to me. I always thought my craft has to be something that already exists that someone had written down for me in a book. Anything outside of that isn't true witchcraft. That's just me making stuff up. That's not true at all. I had no idea. And it really blew my world open for what was possible in in the framework of my practice. And I slowly started to build something that was that was totally mine. I think what happens quite often, especially people who come from religion, mm-hmm. whether it's Christian or Jewish, yeah. they think that they have to follow a certain rules. But with witchcraft, there's so much to it. Mm-hmm. We can make it up as we go along. Mm-hmm. We can tailor it to our own belief system. And it sounds like that's what you did. Absolutely. It's very interesting because I have spoken with people who very much feel that their ethics and morals are based solely and entirely on their, their faith. And they said, how, how can you build a value system around your beliefs if it doesn't come from this book? You know, I'm just like, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I think if you need a book to tell you what is right or wrong, that's something that you need to work out with yourself because I don't feel I need a book to tell me what's right or wrong. And in fact, I absolutely loved this, this statement I read a while back where it was a, I want to say it was a, I think it was even a Catholic church. It could have been Methodist, who knows? It was a priest talking to his congregation that told his congregation, I would like you all to leave here today and live for one day as the atheist does. And everyone was like, what, what, what are you talking about? And the priest went on saying, when you as a Christian act as a good Samaritan to someone who needs help. You are doing so because the Bible tells you to do so. The atheists, when they help as a good Samaritan and act help someone who needs help, doesn't do it because the Bible tells them it's because their heart tells them. So when you leave here, don't do something and act a certain way because the Bible says so. Act as the atheist because the atheist is closer to God than you are because it comes from their heart, not from a book. I love that. It blew me away and it made me realize, one, there are some really good religious leaders out there that are being really overlooked, especially in a sea of really bad ones. But it really spoke to me in a way that made me realize, and more not realize, be more, it affirmed my my value system and where it came from and that I get to choose what I believe is right or wrong in my practice. And I don't need to follow some made up law of three that is not universal, no matter what any book says. It really changed the way that I believed my faith and my belief in spirit could be. It shaped it differently. That's wonderful. Thank you. What kind of a witch would you say you are now, today, after all this exploring? 
you know, as of right now, I identify as a traditional witch. And I think that's a very tricky term because a lot of people hear the word traditional and they, they take it upon themselves to identify and define that word as the tradition or the true version of. And that's not it at all. It actually comes from a different version. It comes from the concept or definition of it's just full of traditions. So, Anyone can make up a tradition or follow a tradition that make that makes you traditional. If I start a new tradition today that every Monday I'm going to eat brownies and then I continue to eat brownies every Monday, ta-da, I've created a new tradition. So when I call myself a traditional witch, it's based off of something that is inspired by Cochrane, uh, Robert Cochrane, who uh, uh, he started the clan of Tubal-Cain back, I want to say, around the same 40s to 50s. I want to say 40s to 50s. Um, it was very interesting. If you want to get into some of the history of it, uh, just briefly, Cochrane and Gardner actually had a lot of ideas surrounding witchcraft. And some of the things that they vehemently disagreed upon caused this split. And Gardner started Gardnerian Wicca, and Cochrane kind of took it into a different direction with traditional witchcraft. Nowadays, I'm, I'm not a, a member of the clan of Tubal Cain. But um, I am someone who follows this concept of traditional witchcraft, which gets a little bit further away from this concept of a god and a goddess or a pantheon and more so um, the witch's devil. So the folkloric devil and sometimes in certain traditions, the witch queen or witch mother. And that follows this concept of not a duality, but two sides of a spectrum and everything in between the physical and the non-physical. So I work with these archetypal spirits, the witch's devil, and then the witch mother. And I see them personally as one being a physical representation, the gatekeeper, the initiator to the magic. And then the gnosis behind it is the witch mother, the non-physical. And I see them as a, not a set, because it's not binary as much as it is two parts of a whole, and then everything in between. I'm sure I'm getting a little philosophical here with it, but that's the closest way I can kind of describe the way that I see spirit or deity. So when I am doing a ritual, I might be calling up uh, the spirits of my land, and that is represented by the folkloric devil, the initiator, the man in black, or the the man of the crossroads, if you will. And then the gnosis comes through. You may have heard the description, the light between the horns in traditional witchcraft. I see the witch mother as that spark of light. You also have a podcast. Yes. Um, I have an amazing co-host, Austin, who lives in Florida. He goes by uh, Bane X Bramble on Instagram. Uh, we together have a podcast. This is our third year uh, to be doing this. Uh, it is called Southern Bramble, a podcast of crooked ways on pretty much all streaming platforms. And we like to talk about witchcraft, have wonderful interviews with some, some fascinating authors. I think that's probably been the most rewarding experience because it has exposed me to so many other people crafts, practices, ideas surrounding magic, spirituality, and witchcraft, uh, things that I will never be interested in, things that have been deeply interesting to me. I just feel so grateful to have that exposure and to see just how big this world is. Uh, we recently did an episode on tools, which was really fascinating because I think, I'm sure you've, you've seen the discussion in a lot of places online, does a witch need tools for witchcraft or can a witch do anything all on her own with no tools, all on their own with no tools at all? And I think that's actually an, a, 
ridiculously oversimplified question. And when we talk about it, we go into the nuances of a lot of these very clickbaity ideas and statements that you see in the spiritual community online and, and get more into the depth of them, if you will. Can you spell the podcast? Southern Bramble, uh, Southern S O U T H E R N Bramble, B R A M B L E. Kind of like Ramble, but Bramble. Yes. Bramble. It's a type of a thorny, like thorny vine. So blackberry bramble. So blackberry bushes are bramble. Uh, there's greenbrier is bramble. Just it's a general term for thorny vines and thorny bushels. Okay. So the audience will know how to find you when they search for your podcast. Absolutely. Please do. And you are about to publish a book. Yes. I am very excited about it. Can you tell us the title or is that a secret? No, I've, I have, I have uh, released that now. So I can tell you the title. I can tell you a little bit about the book. I've actually spoken very little about the contents within so far. So this might be a really fun opportunity. The book is called Cunning Words, a grimoire of tales and magic. Uh, it is a collection of original stories and poems that teach magic and witchcraft in a narrative form. I have read so many witchcraft 101 books. I've read witchcraft 102 books, 202 books, 507 books. I've read all of these witchcraft books and don't get me wrong, there are so many wonderful, amazing educational books out there. But I've seen a lot of redundancy. I've seen a lot of books that come out where, honestly, I've even spoken to some of these authors where like, well, I actually didn't want to write about this, but because I have to give this information before I can give this information, I had to put a foundational book out before I could put out what I really wanted to. And I think that's actually, that makes a lot of sense, to be perfectly honest, especially with traditional publishing. If you're going to talk about something that involves grounding, you're going to have to tell people what grounding is first, right? I didn't want to do that. I just, I chose to completely abscond from, I don't know if abscond is actually going to work in this. Let me rephrase. I chose not to work with traditional publishing in general and self-publish. I am a control freak. I want everything to be mine. I don't want any editor telling me what I need to leave on a cutting room floor. Um, I've spoken with a lot of authors who have been heartbroken about some of the things that have been cut to to make space for no more than 50,000 words per book. I have seen people who are heartbroken about their books getting covers that don't match with what they feel the vibe is. I wanted to do all the artwork. I wanted to do the cover. I want my baby to be mine. And this is my baby. So I am self-publishing on Amazon and hopefully also on uh, Ingram Spark. So retailers will be able to order it for the catalog for the store. I totally understand. You know, it's like when you reach a point in your life where I'm going to publish mm -hmm. a book and it's going to be all mine. You don't want parents and aunts and uncles telling you what words to use, what book cover is going to be on your book. Because when you hand it over to a large publishing company, you have a whole team of people who make their own decisions for your book. Mm -hmm. You're such a smart man. Well, thank you. Please don't get me wrong. I understand very much that these publishing houses, not only are they putting out good books, but it's a business. 
They want to make sure it sells. They're going to do everything within their purview to make sure that a book sells well. So I get what they're doing and why I just have chosen not to participate. <laughs> um, and you know what? To be perfectly honest, I am sometimes jealous of some of the authors I've spoken to who write what they write. They turn it in and it's all done for them. I have formatted and reformatted and reformatted my book 16,000 times. In fact, before getting on here today, I was in the process of reformatting because my editor, who's one of my closest friends, I do his hair for free. He edits my book for free. Good trade. We had some snafus with it, and I am having to reformat for the umpteenth time. And I am now, what, like 16 days? Oh, no, 12 days out from publishing. So I had better get to it. <laughs> but each time you have to make an edit, your heart is in it. It's yours. No, that is absolutely so true. And I really, put, I really did put my heart in this book because this book, like I said, is not a typical 101 book that has chapters on different concepts of witchcraft, the history of it, and then how to do it. Instead, it is a book of tales. It is a book of, of spirits who have been given stories. So when you open my book, when you start reading it, right away, you are to understand that this is not going to spoon feed you step-by-step -step instructions on how to be a witch. This is going to tell you stories about witches. This is going to tell you stories about marginalized people. This is going to tell you journeys of queer people who, who are finding themselves in situations with where magical intercession is needed, desired, and wanted. And sometimes the main characters are the ones performing these acts of magic, and sometimes the main characters are the ones receiving the help from cunning folk. And I really wanted people to walk away from reading it feeling like they were immersed into a completely different world, a world where they were introduced to, to a mythology that they can step out of and then use in their magic, in their craft. So there are characters that then later on in the book, because it's set up in three parts. The first part is tales. The second part is, is rhymes and poems. And the third part is an actual collection of grimoires. So you will have books or grimoires that have magic spells rights extracted from these tales and stories. So there is a story called Our Mother in Green, and it is a tale about a woman who works healing magic with plants. And I don't want to give away too much of the story, but in the grimoire under the green book, which is the, the grimoire that connects back to that story, you have a spell that actually has the ancient abracadabra triangle, right? And it has a bunch of herbs listed that are from the story that she works with. And then in the actual story, in the spell itself, it involves taking the abracadabra triangle, which has a long history of, of removing illness and, and day by day or step by step dwindling sickness, the healing herbs that this character, the spirit from the story uses. And then I'd love to pull it up if I can, because there was a great passage from that that I wanted to just read. Is that okay with oh, you Oh, it's quick? great. Yeah, sure. This sounds enticing. So I pulled it up on my blog, so I wanted to make sure that I had it there. There we go. You take this charm that you have put together with the herbs from the story and the abracadabra triangle, and then into the charm bag, you would say to charge this, 
Abracadabra, said the green mother, into the ear of the sick. I've gathered herbs from my garden and come to heal you up quick. The magic word took away all ailments from the afflicted, a gift from the green mother. No more shall they be afflicted. So what you understand from this concept is that it's a narrative. It's a story. Once you understand the story and the basis behind it, you can see how the charm itself connects back to the spirit from that story and pulls it into the words that you speak. So I've been very inspired by narrative charms in the past, where a lot of narrative charms historically are biblical. So you might have, as Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, I remove this deathly illness from you. As you know, uh, as Jesus cursed the fig tree for not bearing fruit, I now curse so-and-so to no longer be able to bear children. You're using these historical stories and you're taking them into a type of charm. And I do that a lot with my charms in the back, in the grimoire section. So you'll find that a lot of the spells that are in there are 100% original because they connect back to these stories. That sounds like, wow. It reminds me a lot, too, of the way in which a lot of pantheons will work with deities, where you are using a mythology, where certain uh, mythological deities will have maybe certain correspondences or virtues. I don't think working with one mythology is any different from working with another mythology. It's about tapping into it, believing in it, becoming a part of it, making it part of your practice. I think a lot of times people discount fiction and folklore because they think it is separate from, say, the mythology of the Bible, the mythology of the Greek pantheon, the mythology of the North pantheon, the mythology of the Celtic pantheon. I don't think it is. I think these stories carry spirit, whether they are gods or goddesses, or they are images and characters that I literally could not get out of my mind till I put them on paper and gave them their stories. So that's what this book is going to give. And I'm really excited for people to start working with them because I'm a big believer in groupthink. And I do think that the more people are aware of ways in which they can use magic, the characters in my story, the more people can tap in to these characters, the more people can give them attention, reverence, um, veneration. I think it's akin to a type of chaos magic because I am creating something new inspired by something a little bit older. Our interview today, you are still editing the book, but when the listeners are listening to this podcast episode, it will have already been published. So anybody can buy the book off of Amazon. And that's Cunning Words by Marshall WSL. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing feedback. I've gotten some wonderful things back from a few friends of mine and, and, and some very constructive feedback, which has been very, very helpful. I'm a first-time author. I do not expect to get everything right the first time, but I do expect I don't expect. I am proud of it. I even get, I, I sometimes get very choked up reading it because it is my baby. And I'm, I never thought that I would have the capacity to write a book, let alone one that I would be so proud of. I'm excited for what's coming. I will be working on an audiobook that'll come out later this spring. I will be the one uh, narrating it as well. Uh, I have a close friend who is doing some original music that will be in it as well. So I have some really fun things in the mix. And of course, it's also inspired a second and a third book. So I have my next two years of writing already kind of semi-planned out. That's fantastic. 
And I think it's great that you're going to be the voice behind your own book. I agree. Thank you. I'm very excited. I don't think I would feel comfortable listening to someone else tell my stories. I would probably be very judgmental about the way in which they were vocalizing it. Um, I am judgmental about myself when I vocalize it. I'm like, nope, that doesn't sound right. I gotta do it again. Um, I even wanted to take a a royalty-free, like, either campfire or fireplace sound and put it in the background of pretty much the whole thing. Um, a lot of audiobooks have no music in them whatsoever, except for interludes, sometimes between chapters. I like the idea of these stories being told by a hearth or over a campfire. I want you to be immersed into this experience so it can become part of your psyche. I want you to feel these characters' anguish. They're not always happy. I want you to feel their love. I want you to feel their fear. I want you to to be one with these characters so you can take them into your craft, into your practice, and work with them because you feel them. You want us to be sucked into your story and feel like we're there. I do. I absolutely do. One of the greatest things about getting to put the art and do all the illustrations for my own book is I actually already have been an artist for about a year now. I have a Redbubble shop. Uh, I will be putting a lot of my work that is in my book in the Redbubble shop. Um, if you aren't aware of what Redbubble is, it's literally redbubble.com. I have the links for my specific shop there in the platform of uh, the bio of all of my platforms. It is a shop of merchandise where I just upload my art and it comes out on T-shirts, uh, uh, phone cases, scarves, journals, pictures that you can hang. Pretty much anything that my art can be printed on is on there. So I have been slowly uploading more and more art previously from before the book, but also now from the book itself. So there's already a few things on there that uh, you can see that will be in the book that you're getting a kind of a free preview of. And as soon as it is published, there will be more as well. What is your shop name within Redbubble? I believe it's Marshall WSL. Yeah, so if you go to Redbubble and go under search and just look Marshall WSL, one word, it should pop up. Okay. And if you don't want to go to Redbubble, just go to my bio, the link in my bio. I have lots and lots of, of options on there. If you ever open it up, you'll notice there are a few links for practitioners to help with their craft. I have an entire section of of free oral herbal correspondences, crystal correspondences, how to make your own sigils, planets of the week, days of the week, uh, planetary squares, lots of information just free for any practitioner to have a resource to go look up. I have collected these over the past several years, including I have the Internet Book of Shadows, Planetary Hours and Virtues, Free Planetary Hours Calculator, Making Herbal Abstractions, Planetary Herbal Virtues. So you have plenty to work with and you don't have to pay a dime. This is on Redbubble? This is on my platform, on my link tree. So if you just go to my Instagram uh, at Witch of Southern Light, you can see on my link tree, you'll click it and you'll see a series of free links and resources for any practitioner to use in their craft, as well, of course, as my blog on Pathios. I probably should have mentioned that too. Well, you're mentioning it now. Tell us about it. I do. I have a blog on Pathios Pagan called The Southern Light Diaries. I think I have about five five or six articles on there now. I've 
posts an article almost every Friday about a myriad of topics, experiences I've had, things that I want to just, you know, rail into the void about and things that I'd like to question historically and maybe, maybe modernize just a little bit. The audience can find you on Instagram at Witch of Southern Light. And your link tree is there with all your links. That's correct. Thank you, Marshall WSL, Witch of Southern Light, for being our guest today. Thank you, Theodora. This has been this has been really exciting. I have yet to have the opportunity to really talk about and dive into my book. So this is this was a real treat. It's been a treat for me too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Witch Casting with Theodora Pendragon. Have a burning question or have a topic you'd love Theodora and her guests to discuss on the show? Contact her through Instagram at Theodora Pendragon. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And help us spread the word by leaving us a rating and review and sharing it with your friends. See you next time, and may your magic always shine. Thank you.